This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast series on cardiac disease in a pregnant woman. My name is Julie Arafay, Simulation Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, and I'm here with my partner, Suzanne Baird, Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, and Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. The topic for discussion today is a continuing discussion on peripartum cardiomyopathy. Let's review the patient we talked about in our last podcast. She's a 33-year-old Gravita 1 with dichorionic twin pregnancy at 34 and 3 7 weeks. She presented to triage complaining of shortness of breath. She has had an uncomplicated prenatal course to date. No significant medical or surgical history. Her initial vital signs were blood pressure 151 over 82, pulse 120, respiratory rate 24, and oxygen saturation of 95%. Based on these vital signs showing hypertension, tachycardia, tachypnea, and mild hypoxemia, as well as her complaints, peripartum cardiomyopathy was considered and she underwent a workup for this. The results of the workup included a chest X-ray showing bibasilar infiltrates consistent with pulmonary edema and cardiomegaly. Her labs were white blood cells, 13,000, hemoglobin of 10, and hematocrit of 29%, platelets of 249,000, a creatinine of 0.6, urine protein was negative, AST of 21, ALT of 20, and BMP of 600. Her echocardiogram showed an ejection fraction of 32% with an enlarged left ventricle. Stephanie, why don't you review the echo diagnostic criteria for peripartum cardiomyopathy? Sure. So, you know, as you remember from our last podcast, there's a combination of history and echocardiogram findings that are suggestive of cardiomyopathy. And so first you have to take into account whether or not the patient has any identifiable cause for her heart failure. So to be labeled as peripartum cardiomyopathy, you really have to have ruled out everything else. And the patient has to have no history of recognizable cardiac disease before the pregnancy. In addition, this is heart failure that develops in the last month of pregnancy or in the five months postpartum. Now on echo, you're primarily looking at the ejection fraction and an ejection fraction less than 45% is consistent with a cardiomyopathy. Shortening fraction of under 30% suggests decreased contractility. And you also look at the size of the left ventricle. The larger it is, uh, the, the more concerning it is. So greater than two and a half centimeters per meter squared, um, left ventricular end diastolic volume is consistent with a dilated cardiomyopathy. 
Now, our patient has been maintained on a continuous pulse oximetry throughout her evaluation, and her pulse ox readings have been steadily uh, trending downwards. She's on nasal cannula and oxygen right now, and her SATs are 91 to 92%. Now is the time to stop and do some critical thinking about this patient's care. You need to consider who needs to be involved in her care. Is it in your hospital's scope of services to care for this type of patient? Should she be transferred to a higher level of care? What needs to be done to stabilize this patient? And remember, this patient needs to be stabilized whether or not she's transferred. Too often, these questions are inadequately or never addressed. The teams begin immediately planning for delivery, often by cesarean, without adequately addressing maternal condition. Every patient with peripartum cardiomyopathy should be stabilized and her cardiac performance enhanced before she is subjected to major abdominal surgery or labor induction. Suzanne, can you talk about what needs to be done to maximize this patient's cardiac performance before delivery? Sure. That's, you know, I love talking about these two concepts and, it, and these two key concepts are essential to maximize before this patient delivers. So the first, cardiac output. And just to remind everybody, the formula for cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. Very simple. So number one, cardiac output. Maximize that for this patient. Number two, maximize oxygen transport. So let's break these two down and start with cardiac output. That is going to be the train that takes the oxygen to the tissues and we need to talk about the four basic components of cardiac output that need to be addressed. Let's start with the most important component, and that's preload. When you think of preload, I want you to think volume, volume, preload. Address this first. Address preload because preload, volume, it affects every single other component of cardiac output. So if you maximize the preload, and in this patient, she's hypervolemic because the cardiac muscle is not functional, she's fluid volume overloaded, she has a twin pregnancy with a lot of volume on board, that is going to affect the other three components of cardiac output. Preload, volume, address that first. Okay, second component, afterload, think pressure. Afterload is just the resistance that the ventricles meet as the blood exits the heart. So it's resistance or pressure. And so it's what that heart is going to have to overcome to pump against to get the blood out of the heart. So you can see how that would affect cardiac output. So think pressure, afterload. Third component, contractility. Think force. It's just how strong the heart muscle is working, how, how hard it's working to get that blood to pump out of the heart. It's the contractility. And again, if we're thinking cardiomyopathy, this muscle, this cardiac muscle is overstretched. So it's not going to contract down as well as it will in a patient who has a healthy heart but if it's overstretched with too much fluid, then we're not contracting well at all. So you can see how that would cause a pulmonary edema backup 
in the system. And then the fourth component of cardiac output, which makes sense since cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate, is the heart rate. So the fourth component of managing this patient is manage the heart rate. But this comes at the very last. Heart rate may be, at this time, maybe the only thing that is maintaining a cardiac output for this patient. So you definitely don't want to adjust cardiac output um, and by lowering a heart rate because this may be compensatory for this patient. So don't block her heart rate at this time. Address the volume first, address the contractility, address the afterload, and then look at your heart rate and then consider other interventions at that point. So now let's let's kind of go through each one of these and talk about how to maximize cardiac output from through each one of these four key components that Suzanne just outlined. So first is preload. So to manage preload or to deal with preload, you're going to think diuresis. And for most of us, that's going to be some furosemide. The idea is that you want to go low and slow. You don't want to just blast these patients with high doses of furosemide. That's not the way to go. You don't want to correct this too quickly. So low doses, you can always get more if you don't get the response that you want. It's very important that you monitor her ins and outs very, very carefully. So these patients are going to need um, a Foley catheter in place. You can sit them up in bed to try and uh, recruit airways and improve the respiratory uh, situation. You want to avoid bolusing fluids and you want to be monitoring and limiting her intake as much as possible because she's already significantly volume, volume overload. So to deal with preload, you're going to think diuresis. Now to maximize and improve afterload, first you're going to address preload because often by dealing with the volume, then you see an improvement in her blood pressures. The afterload goes down and you don't need anything else. But if the diuresis does not adequately treat your preload or your afterload, your blood pressure, then you're going to need to treat that hypertension. And that's done typically with calcium channel blockers. And if they're delivered, then we would typically give an ACE inhibitor. But it's important to remember that diuresis is often enough. So don't rush to, to give them an antihypertensive medication if you haven't first addressed uh, the preload and diurese the patient. Now, the third component is that contractility. So a lot of times when you reduce the volume uh, and that improves the preload and the afterload, then that may improve contractility enough. So that ventricle muscle is not as overstretched as it was before. So it can contract better. So just doing those two things can improve contractility. But if it doesn't do it enough, then you can think about things like digoxin or dobutamine to actually stimulate that muscle to contract more effectively. And then lastly is heart rate. And heart rate management is always last. So as the cardiac output improves and your stroke volume goes down a little bit, your heart rate will also go down. So if the patient's been trying to maintain her cardiac output by being tachycardic, then as you improve the situation, the heart rate may go down all it needs to with that alone. But if the patient is persistently tachycardic after you've dealt with your preload, afterload, and contractility, that's when you can consider a beta blocker. But that comes last. And we would do that only if we need to like minimize the cardiac work because the heart may be working so hard it's making the situation worse. But beta blockers are not your first-line therapy. If you're going to use a beta blocker, we're typically using something like propranolol. Now, Another component of heart rate that needs to be monitored is, you know, the rhythm. So these patients will often have dilated left atrium. They are at risk for arrhythmias. 
but those arrhythmias are both atrial and ventricular. So you want to assess pulse quality to, to know, you know, how, how well is this patient perfusing? Do I need to be concerned about any arrhythmias going on? Now, of course, any patient in this situation needs to be on continuous ECG monitoring because of this risk for atrial fibrillation and particularly ventricular arrhythmias when the ventricular muscle is so taxed. So next, let's talk about what the bedside nurse needs to look for. How are you going to know if the patient is responding to the therapy? It's going to be important to increase the frequency of vital signs assessment and to be very clear and thorough when you assess the vital signs. You want to listen to the heart rate for a full minute with your stethoscope. You want to look at oxygen saturation trends. Continuous ECG monitoring is going to be done, and you're going to be listening to the lung sounds as well as counting the patient's respiratory rate for a full minute with your stethoscope. Now let's recall our goals. So thanks, Julie. Our goals are about maximizing cardiac output and oxygen transport. Those are the two things that we've been focusing on. But so far, we've talked mostly about cardiac output. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about how to maximize and improve oxygen transport. So the key components, there's really three key components for effective oxygen transport. And the first is how much oxygen is actually circulating in the arterial system. In other words, does she have the ability to carry adequate amounts of oxygen in her blood? And this is going to be to a large degree related to the amount of red blood cells. So what is her hemoglobin level? Patients who are anemic or have very low hemoglobin levels are not going to be able to carry adequate amounts of oxygen to deliver to the tissues because hemoglobin is the primary way that oxygen is carried. The second part of this is saturation. So yes, you need to have a lot of red blood cells to carry hemoglobin around, but you can have a lot of red blood cells, but they're not carrying the full amount of hemoglobin that they could be carrying. And that's the saturation. So the amount of red blood cells and how well saturated they are, are two key components to how well you're going to deliver oxygen. Now for saturation, of course, this is where your continuous oxygen saturation assessments are going to be essential. She's got to be on a continuous pulse ox. And your goal is to have that saturation greater than 95%. Now it's important to remember that this is a higher threshold for, we use this threshold in pregnancy and that's higher than that's often seen uh, for non-pregnant patients. Our intensive care colleagues will be more comfortable or be comfortable with O2 sats of 90 to 92%. But in a pregnant woman, you really want to keep that O2 sat above 95%. Now, Suzanne, why don't you talk about the last component of that oxygen transport? Yes. And that's the utilization or the oxygen demand. So that's sometimes something that we forget about too. We, we focus in on the saturation or we may get the hemoglobin levels up, but then we're, we've got to figure out, you know, how is activity affecting her oxygen saturations? And this is where we talk about, we need to wait to deliver this patient. We need to wait to go to the OR until she's stabilized because all of that activity in it will cause her to consume too much oxygen. So her utilization will outpace the uh, availability of oxygen at the tissue level. So 
what is the activity currently for this patient? What um, You want to make sure that she is not up moving around too much, but you can assess that even by just turning the patient and watching the effects on the oxygen saturation. If the oxygen saturation drops when the patient uh, moves in the bed, then that is a very unstable situation where the utilization is outpacing again the availability. So the demand is greater than the availability of oxygen. So take that into consideration. If she desaturates with movement, she's unstable. Um, also, make sure that you are um, thinking about decreasing that demand on her heart. And one of the, the ways to do that is to manage pain. So we don't want the patient to labor right now. But in the postpartum period, in the postoperative period, manage pain aggressively. Um, because that is going to be essential to decrease that utilization for oxygen. So let's check in on our patient now. She's received two doses of furosemide, both at 20 milligram doses. And after receiving those doses, she has diuresed 3,400 milliliters in the first two hours. So she had quite a lot of fluid uh, to release with those two doses. So you can see how just those small doses alone, just two of them, going low, going slow, worked for this patient to get rid of that much fluid. She's sitting up in the bed, and that's an important maneuver too. To sit her up in bed not only recruits more alveoli and helps her to breathe, but it also decreases the return to the right side of the heart. Her oxygen has now come down. She's just on two liters of uh, nasal cannula now, where she had been on a higher um, uh, dosing of oxygen. And now her blood pressure is normalized. Her heart rate is less than 100. Her oxygen saturations are greater than 95%, and she has a normal respiratory rate. So this patient remained stable overnight, and she had a repeat echo the following day, and it showed that her ejection fraction is now 42%. Still low, but much improved over the previous ejection fraction. Since it's still low, she started on digoxin on day two of hospitalization. So that concludes today's discussion. In our next podcast, we will address how to manage the patient during the delivery, PACU, and immediate postpartum course. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. Again, that's www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, or on Twitter at OB Critical Care. Email us or send us a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. We've already received several, and we appreciate those suggestions. For a list of references on today's topic, go to the READ app at qxmv.com slash apps or to our website. Thanks again. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to Nashville Podcast at gmail.com.
Once again, that is Nashville Podcast at gmail.com. 